0: Here Bibles and turn with me to Genesis, book of Genesis. We, work, believe in, we believe that working through books of the Bible is the best way to hear the whole counsel of God, to hear what God wants to say to us week after week. So we move through verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, and sometimes we come to chapters that are well known and famous and easy to understand. Sometimes we come to ones... are less well known and we're in genesis chapter 20 and let's pray as we come to reading the reading of god's word heavenly father i thank you for your word i thank you that every word comes through your hand holy spirit give me the words to speak well of our savior our redeemer jesus in whose name i pray amen it's entitled Abraham and Abimelech. From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him behold you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken for she is a man's wife now Abimelech had not approached her so he said lord will you kill an innocent people did he him, did not himself did he not himself say to me she is my sister and she herself said he is my brother Who are yours? So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. And I thought I was out of the woods when I finished Genesis 19. And uh, at first glance, this looks like a relatively unimportant story. Some may well ask why it is here in the first place and if it is necessary at all. Liberal scholars and commentators speculate about a number of source theories and say that these sister-wife wife stories are repeated. So maybe it's just from a common source and manipulated to maybe not even original. Because in Genesis 12 there was one. Coming up with Isaac there's going to be a third. Passing off your wife is your sister story. And they proceed along similar lines. The patriarch is afraid, so he concocts a plan of deception. He tells a lie or a half-truth to deceive the foreign king. This leads always to his wife being taken, near disaster. But at the end, he receives phenomenal blessing and he escapes. Which is what we saw in Genesis 12, when Abraham and Sarah were travelling because of the famine to Egypt. So you could be forgiven for coming to Genesis 20 and saying can't you skip it, can't you just get on with the rest of the story but we need to slow down and pay attention to the detail to see what God has to say to us. Because in this story almost all the major themes of Genesis are here. We see here the fickleness and the failures of God's people. Great Abraham who's had wonderful moments of spiritual triumph we see again at his worst which is very much like us if we were honest and we see the indestructibility of God's promise because the result of the story is that God's promise to Abraham to bless him often is not because of Abraham but blessing in spite of Abraham in order that his promise comes true and we see here again the promise Abraham will be a blessing and a curse to the nations when you treat Abraham poorly bad things happen when you treat him well good things happen and we see God the sovereign one who opens and closes the womb so we see all of these themes as we work through Genesis 21 to 18 So the outline is simple. Four-point sermon. Number one, there's a problem. Number two, there's a conversation between God and Abimelech. Number three, there's a conversation between Abraham and Abimelech. And number four, there is a resolution. So let's look at the problem, first of all. Verses one and two. Abraham journeyed, presumably, from where he had been in Mamre, and he moved south to the territory of the Negev it simply means south so he's going south to the desert towards the sinai peninsula and abraham comes to the philistine city of gerar and he is still a sojourner he's been promised the land that he's traveling in but at this point he is still a sojourner in it he has not inherited it and similar to Genesis 12, when Abraham and Sarai flee to Egypt, drew in the famine, here it is a different event, and as we just read, this is a pattern with Abraham. This is a strategy when Abraham set out from Ur of the Chaldees. Apparently this is a common predicament, especially for rich and famous men like Abraham. This happens in any culture, You have some things that the culture get really right, some things it gets really wrong, and you can never just say it is only one or the other. So, for example, we see in the ancient Near East, they held marriage in high regard. For she is a man's wife. Committing adultery was a sin. The pagan king sees, sees, what have I done? Marriage is sacred. I do not commit adultery. Adultery, no. Murder, eh. So we can kill him, but I just can't take his wife. So that's why they concoct the plan, the sister-wife story. And in the story in Genesis 12, many years before, it was because of Sarai's great beauty. Sarah's in her 90s here. In simply be that Abimelech wants to have a marriage alliance. He he certainly would have had other wives and concubines, as most of the pagan kings would have had. And he thinks, well, it's just his sister, so he doesn't kill Abraham, but he takes Sarah into his household to be his wife. Abraham is no ordinary man at this point. He's very wealthy. He's almost a king in his own right. He has a large entourage of livestock, servants, if you remember, he defeated other kings. And Abraham does this sister thing again. Abimelech takes Sarah to be his wife. Abimelech does this later in Genesis. And you're tempted to think, hmm, Abimelech, you fell for it again with Isaac? Well, all to say it may not be the same Abimelech, because if I looked at it this week, Abim, Abimelech, simply means my father is king. So it could be that Abimelech or Abimelech is just a royal title, like Pharaoh or president or king or mayor of Pharaoh. So Abimelech may not be his first name, but may be a given title for, a lead, for the leader of the people. But once again, we have this problem. Sarah has been captured by a foreign king, a powerful king, So what is going to happen? This is the problem. That's the problem. So then we move to the second point, the first conversation, verses 3 through 7, between God and Abimelech. And immediately God appears to Abimelech in a dream. It's not the kind of dream you would want to have, to be honest with you. Because the first words that God says, behold, you're a dead man. (laughs) <laughs> I think I would have w- woke screaming. <laughs> That's scary. It's, but it's like God announcing to the Ninevites, 40 days and you'll be destroyed. So, the, Because there is a number of parallels here between the story with Jonah and the Ninevites. Because Jonah comes to the Ninevites and just says, God's message 40 days and you'll be destroyed. But implicit in the announcement of judgment is always the opportunity to repent, to turn, to be forgiven, to have an expression of God's grace. Abimelech here asserts his innocence, and God affirms he's innocent. But he still has to do the right thing by returning Sarah to Abraham. And I find this, it's the time, you know, I, I can quite understand this but it's there providing Abraham with the gift to right the wrong and this is what comes at the end. If you remember twice in our studies, I think it's twice maybe even three times in the studies of Genesis I introduced this literary technique called a chiasm. You remember that? And it's named after the Greek letter we would write like an X. And if you picture an X you've got a funnel Going down, a funnel going away, and X marks the spot. It's called chiasm. Some people preach only sermons looking for the chiastic structure. I'm not that intelligent, but I can say it. But it is a literary technique where you have the part of the story at the top, the part of the story at the bottom, and then they come and meet in the middle. And the first half is reflected as a mirror, so that's why the X in reverse order in the second half. That's a chiasm. The point is to see what is in the middle. You could say, I walked my dog by the lake, by the lake my canine roads. Canine roads. I get mixed up with canine and canine, so I have to be careful. But, and in the middle, and that's a chiasm. So it's very simple. So it starts in verse 3, Behold, you are a dead man. You can call that A, if you like, in the funnel going down. You go to the end of the speech and you say, see the same thing coming out. Which let's call it A2, verse 7. For he is a prophet, so he will pray for you and you shall live. And the conversation begins, behold, you are dead. It ends, here is how you can live. So let's go to B, that's A. You go to B, you go to verse 3. B, it says, because of the woman you have taken... So you took the woman, now go down to verse seven, but if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. You took the woman, now the backside of the story, you return the woman, so that's B2. B is you took the woman, B2, return the woman. Go up to verse four to see C. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, "God, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? And C2, is verse six. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. So, will you kill an innocent people? And the Lord says, "I have kept you and made you an innocent person." And one more, D, verse five. Did he not say? Him, did he himself not say, Did he not himself say to me, "She is my sister," and she herself said, "He is my brother." In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And verse six then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. So you could trace that out, A, B, C, D, and reverse order, D2, C2, B2, A2. But the point is, besides that's really confusing, I didn't understand a word of what you said, and it's interesting or might not be, I think I see that, not quite sure. Point is, what is in the middle? What is in the middle is at the beginning of verse 6, then God said to him in a dream, The emphasis is that God is the director of all things. God is the one who's directing the course of human events. That in the middle of this, in the middle of the chaos, where the promise seems to be in jeopardy, God said to him in a dream, God not for one second lost control of the situation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that with the pandemic? Do you believe that with Afghanistan? Do you believe that whenever you read bad news in the world and we're gonna read more bad news probably this week? God has not for a millisecond lost control. Now the king was innocent. And remember I said there are parallels with the story of Jonah. And Jonah is one of those stories where the foreigners come out looking much better than the king's servant. Same here in Jonah's story. The men on the boat fear God more than Jonah. Jonah's running away from God. The men in the boat say, oh, this storm, we're in danger, and they chuck him overboard. The people of Nineveh repented, even when Jonah preached a really rubbish sermon, and he had a really hard heart. The foreign people came out looking better than the Lord's servant, and it happens in this story that Abraham doesn't shine. The king has more fear before his eyes. Let's not give Abimelech too much credit. He's right to defend himself. He didn't know that Sarah was married. He wasn't trying to commit adultery. He did not commit adultery. But if he would have made with her, it would have been a sin. And it's possible even when we do something out of ignorance, it is still sin. But I notice again, the Lord is in control. Verse six, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, but it was I, who kept you from sinning against me. How did God keep Abimelech from sinning? We'll see it in verse 17, really. I won't go into that right now. But I don't think it was Abimelech's righteousness, but God's sovereignty. The Lord prevented him for how many weeks or months that Sarah was with him, that he never went into her as a husband to a wife. The Lord in his sovereignty was in control. The Lord was direct in all of these affairs. And never forget, in our absolutely chaotic, sinful, sin-stained world, God is the writer, the director and the producer of our story. He is never the one who is the actor of evil and sin. We are responsible because we are the ones who act and do the sin. But by by overarching sovereignty, he so rules over everything. He is not in a panic, even though we are. I sometimes wake in the middle of the night, even last night, and you read the news. A very, very bad thing to do. I call it doom scrolling. <laughs> you scroll and it's more and more doom. But there's always more bad news. And the answer is not to be ignorant of things that are going on in the world. And how we might pray and how we might help and serve. But it is easy to be overwhelmed by the burdens that only God can carry. We must have absolute confidence this morning that in the middle of our story, just as in the middle of that chiastic structure, in Abimelech's story, God is directing, God is controlling. And thank the Lord that God is at the wheel of our lives. So that's the second conversation. The third conversation is Abimelech and Abraham. That's verses 8 to 13. This conversation between Abimelech and Abraham. In verse 8, Abimelech fears God. He hasn't got his theology squared away. He probably thinks his God is one of many gods. But he does rise early in the morning and tell his servants and they are afraid. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom, but it is the beginning. He rebukes Abraham. Abimelech, the pagan king, rebukes Abraham. And he says, in effect, Abraham, what on earth were you thinking? You're trying to ruin my life? Why do you do this to me? And Abraham tries to defend himself. He gives three excuses for his behaviour. He gives three, not one, but three. First of all, there's no fear of God in this place. I knew that you would kill me. Well, Abraham hasn't gotten this one right. And even if that was the case, there is something worse than death. This is the mark of the godly man or woman. They fear sin more than they fear suffering. Because there is something worse than death. And as you pray for people, and you pray for loved ones near and far, and we pray for them for an end to their suffering, whatever it may be, wars, famine, cancer, disappointments in life, we pray for an end to suffering. That is right, we must and should. But do you ever pray that God would keep them safe, from sin? That God would keep them from more sin? So Abraham was wrong to think that sin is acceptable if it gets me out of suffering. That somehow you know, it's okay, sin is never acceptable to, even if it is to get you out of suffering. And Abraham was wrong that there was no fear of God in this place. There was a great deal of fear of God. And part of what we're seeing is this comes after Genesis 19. Sodom is destroyed. Not every pagan city was as bad as Sodom. Not every pagan king is like the king of Sodom. So here we have one by common, God's common grace who has a basic respect for God insofar as he understands God. Abraham's first excuse isn't a good one. The second excuse is technically she's my sister, she was a half sister. Later in the Mosaic law, marrying your half-sister is going to be outlawed. So part of what the Israelites are meant to see is that this is not even a good excuse because Abraham is going to do what God later prohibits. So even if it was technical truth at this point, his intention was to deceive. They knew very well how people would understand them, and that was the point that Abraham was deceiving. We convince ourselves that what I'm saying, I can technically defend as true. When the intention is to deceive, we ought to know better. So the second is not a good excuse. The third excuse, God made me a wanderer, verse 13, so I had to take precautions. And This was the plan all along. If you love me, Sarah, you'll share in this with me. Whether she was happy to go along with it or not, I tend to think not. Abraham has made her to be a pawn in his own ambitions. Let's take stock of what Abraham has said in his defence. He talked about the supposed impiety of the Philistines, he talked about Sarah's technical relationship to him, and he talks about God making him a wanderer. Abraham says that everything is not my fault. It's kind of your fault, actually. It's kind of your fault, it's kind of Sarah's fault, it's kind of God's fault. Isn't that like us? Who's to blame for your sin? I can think of a whole lot of people but the only person I don't think of is me. It might be your fault, it might be my wife's fault, it might be God's fault. Me? No, not my fault. I'm essentially good. If any if only people knew how good I was. But we all do this, especially with the sins that we commit so easily. And maybe the problems in your life right now, you're looking everywhere else for an excuse. You're blaming everyone. You're blaming the postman, you're blaming your parents, you're especially blaming Boris Johnson. You blame everyone apart from you. And the common denominator in the malfunctions and problems in your life might just be you. Of course, sometimes we're victims of others and truly not to blame. But it's all too common that we take upon ourselves a sort of heart like Abraham. No, it's not. Abraham's sin and it was a besetting sin. A besetting sin which is an older word but it's a good word because it's a word that means that sins that are so easy we kind of just fall into them and we run after them over and over again. Cultures have besetting sin. I don't know whether you're a historian or look at history but if you look at Christians in the 18th century. If you study Christians, Christian life in the 18th century, there was a zero tolerance for sexual sin. Now, some might have committed sexual sin privately, but if you went and read Christians from the 18th century, they were blind to slavery. So slavery was a besetting sin of that culture. Now, we have the flip side in this century. There's a stigma about racism. Now some people may be racist privately, but publicly there is no sin that would be denounced more quickly than that. We have our eyes attuned, our ears alert, and there's zero tolerance for racism in the world today, which is the opposite of the 18th century because we have a great besetting sin of sexual immorality. And it's so much so that it's part of the air we breathe. Cultures have besetting sins. And not just culturally, but we, you, me, have personally besetting sins. I'm sure you find this in your life. I do. You get into the same kind of problem again and again and again. You have the same kind of fears, the same kind of sin. One commentator says, they're deeply worn channels of our corrupt nature. And if you think about it, sin... Finds the low places, it finds the well-worn grooves in your corrupt nature in my career, corrupt nature. Do you ever find yourself saying, Why did I do that again? Why did I say that again? You feel hurt, you feel alone, and you go down that well-worn path of your corrupt nature. The anger, anger's a problem, bitterness, the avoidance of conflict people-pleasing? I don't like conflict. I like everyone to like me. Or is it lying? Well, one of the reasons that God gives us three of these stories, these sister-wife things, and this is the second one, is to give us an example that the great patriarch Abraham, who had these high, wonderful moments of courage and valour to defeat the kings, to rescue Lot, To pray for Sodom. And yet he keeps coming back to, yeah, my wife's my sister. So surely it is true in your life and it is in mine. There are certain sins in your life, just like Abraham. They seem, this seems so obvious to us. You think, oh Abraham, not again. But we are blind to our own besetting sins. No, we, we need to be humble. And that was one of the things apparently that Abraham feared. What do you do when you're afraid? Well, you show anger. I know what, one of the things of our age is just the sheer anger. You have to spend five minutes on social media and it's not a good thing to do. But if you do, there's just so much anger. And people have even started saying that anger is a thing, something that needs to be channeled into doing good. No, anger is wrong. People self-medicate. You feel sorry for yourself. Abraham had a facet in sin. Well, what do we do with besetting sins? We recognise the pattern, that we've done this before. We recognise it. i felt this way before. Here we go again. You recognise that pattern. And two, remember how it worked out last time. Remember. Well, maybe you can remember, it wasn't so bad because God helped me. Well, remember that. Or remember, I went that way and it ended in disaster. And three, you have a choice, that's key. Our culture tells us we don't have choices anymore. You're just a product of your circumstances, your environment, your genes, your biology, your genes spelt with G, not with J, your biology, whatever. But you realise that you have a choice. You don't have to go down that path again. You really don't. The Spirit of God is in you. You don't have to go down that path again. Just because you always have done. And then respond in faith. When necessary, repent. And cry, God help me. You recognise, you remember, you realise, you respond. So that's the second conversation. And the final part of the sermon you'll be glad to hear is the resolution, verses 14 through 18. So we've got a problem, we've had a conversation, we've got another conversation and resolution. Abimelech gives Abraham three gifts. But well, most is important, he yeah. gives Sarah back. But in addition to that, three gifts. Verse 14, livestock and servants. Verse 15, permission to dwell wherever he wants. And verse 16, a thousand pieces of silver. Now, we just, this just goes over our head. But a thousand pieces of silver, I worked out this week, is a tremendous amount of money. One scholar said it would take a working man 150 years to earn a 1,000 pieces of silver. So even if you took, I don't know, the average wage in in this country and times it by 150, that's quite a lot. So though it was given to Abraham, it was worthy of note that the conversation was directed to Sarah, verse 16. To Sarah, Abimelech said, behold, I've given Abraham a 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and for everyone you have vindicated. And we'll see in a moment why this is so important in the story of Genesis. But what we see clearly is the immutability, the indestructibility of God's promise. And when Abimelech did wrong by Abraham, even when by accident, it meant cursing, just like God had said, everyone who curses you, Abraham, I will curse. And even by accident, when Abimelech did the wrong thing, by taking Sarah to be his wife, curses befell Abimelech and his whole house. And when Abimelech did right by Abraham, giving Abraham more than he deserved, it was a reversal of all that had gone wrong. Whoever curses you, Abraham, I will curse. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. He restores to them, he heals them. And we see here too that Abraham, whose name is father of many nations, is an instrument of blessing to the nations not only that they bless Abraham they received blessing but now through the prayers of Abraham he interceded for Sodom he now prays for Abimelech and notice what he prayed for verse 17 Then Abraham prayed to God he doesn't say what he prayed but look at the result God healed Abimelech healed his wife and female servants so that they bore children Imagine this, just for a moment, where we are in the story of Genesis. The thing that Abraham had prayed for, probably 10,000 times, had not come true. That his wife had not had a child. How many times do you think that Abraham prayed to God, God, give us a child. At this point, God had not given a child. The thing that he'd prayed for a thousand times, to no avail. Now God answers it to these pagan people. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. We don't understand why he answers some prayers but not others. But the timing here is significant. There's no coincidence at all that this story about the miraculous opening of the womb is right before the birth of Isaac. And part of what we see clearly here is that Bimelech did not lie with Sarah, didn't lay a hand on her, did nothing with Sarah because Sarah for the first time will have a baby and Moses, inspired by God, wants to make sure everyone knows that this is not Abimelech's child. And the gift of a thousand pieces of silver in verse 16 is a sign of her innocence in the eyes of all. It was a public declaration, a vindication of her purity and everyone was to see that. And God knew they needed to see it because of what he was going to do for Sarah. Maybe Abraham would have thought. Maybe God wanted him to think, I prayed for Abimelech. God answered that prayer. Maybe I should pray again for Sarah. Maybe, just maybe, what God promised all those years ago is finally going to come true. So think about this in closing. One of the things that chapter 20 does It is a prelude to the promise. God keeps Abimelech from implanting Sarah. The promise was put in jeopardy by Abraham, but unbeknown to him by Abimelech. But God's plans couldn't be thwarted by either man. God's plan to give Sarah a child by Abraham couldn't be thwarted by Abimelech And it couldn't be thwarted by bumbling, sinning Abraham. Brothers and sisters, God's promise is indestructible. Who knows what God is about to do in our midst. We don't have these same kind of exact promises. But everything here was about to turn. Everything promised was about to come true. No matter how impossible... No matter how much it seemed to Sarah in that moment, surely this is not the way it's supposed to go. I find myself saying and emailing things like, in these dark days, I say, or in these confusing days, I sometimes say, or in these trying times. And all of those things are true. You only have to pay attention to right around us, and then further around the world, There's all sorts of reasons to think we're in dark days and yet do you believe that more than being trying, chaotic, confusing days these are the days of God's promise. These are the days of God's promise and his promise is indestructible. His promise to forgive when we repent His promise to draw near, when we draw near to him, as we draw near to him. His promise to return. Do you believe that? His promise to return, to judge the living and the dead. His promise to save all those who call on the name of Christ. His promise to work for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. His promise to work all things, all things, for the glory of his name. His promise to do more than we can ask or imagine. So let us not think that we're so different from Abraham Sarah thing, just because we don't do the wife sister thing. Separated by all sorts of cultural, temporal circumstances and time. And yet we can be prone to besetting sin, the same challenges, to trust, the same sense that in this dark, confusing, chaotic moment, we doubt that God is going to come through. But he will. God will come through because he has and he always does in surprising ways. Let's close with this. His way is better than we dare ask or imagine. May this story From the Bible, God's word this morning just calls us to fall on our knees and trust him because his promises always come true. May God bless the word for his glory and for our good, for his name's sake. Amen.